this is Joe Jakevich, and welcome to the Storylanes podcast, the podcast where I analyze screenplays and talk about how I'm making an independent feature film. Yes, that's right, I'm hard at work producing Domicidal, an independent horror film. It's the story of a cantankerous feminist tech podcaster who is making a podcast about living in a smart tech home. But there's a problem, the house is haunted. Or so it seems, because all that smart home technology is controlled by a hacker. It's as if your worst enemy in the world controlled your Alexa. This week I have what I hope you'll consider to be a treat. I know I consider it to be a treat, because this week I'm going to turn back the clock. Turn it back to the first season of this podcast, but also turn it back to 1942, when World War II was raging and when classic Hollywood was at its best. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that the first season was all about analyzing screenplays. I did a deep dive analysis of the screenplays of 15 different movies, ranging from Oscar winners like Parasite to low-budget horror movies like It Follows. I really enjoyed doing those analyses, and I learned a whole lot. In my opinion, the best way to learn about screenwriting is to study the great scripts, and also to study the not-so-greats and try to figure out where they fell short. That was the original goal of this podcast. But there was a problem. These analyses take a lot of time. To prepare one, I have to read the screenplay, watch the movie, do the analysis, write up the script for the episode, review the script, record the podcast, edit it all to remove all the uhs and ums and other verbal stumbles, review the edited recording of the podcast, put it up on the webpage for the episode, and then and only then was I done. Each episode took almost two full days of effort. When I was pushing out an episode a week, I was between jobs, so I had time to spend. But then I went back to work, and then I got rolling on domicidal, and suddenly time is at a premium. But I still think these analyses have huge value, both to me and to potential listeners. So I'm going to try to start publishing episodes like that again. Oh, I won't be doing one a week, but I'm going to try to do one a month. I'll also still give the occasional updates on domicidal progress. But if you want more detailed news on how that's going, sign up for the domicidal newsletter at httpdomicidalmovie.com. But now to the analysis. To celebrate my return to the story lane's roots, I'm going to start with what I consider to be the greatest screenplay ever written. It's Casablanca, screenplay by Julius and Philip Epstein and Howard Koch, based on a play by Murray Burnett and Joan Allison. Casablanca is generally considered to be one of America's greatest films. It stands at number three on AFI's list of 100 Best American Movies. But personally, I rate it at number one. It's my all-time favorite American movie. And why is this so? It's so because it has such a great screenplay. Now don't get me wrong, the movie is excellently acted and directed, and the camera work is quite good, though not up to the levels of some of the greatest examples of American cinematography. But oh, that screenplay. Now as always, there will be spoilers in this episode. But really, if you haven't ever seen Casablanca, why are you listening to a screenwriting podcast? It's one of the pillars of American film. Do yourself a gigantic favor and go see it now. Now I'm going to be doing something a little different in this episode. Instead of spending time looking at Casablanca through the lens of all those screenwriting models, I'm going to focus on why I think it's such a great screenplay. We'll definitely get into the structure of the screenplay, because as William Goldman reminds us, screenplay is structure. 
and Casablanca has a great one. But I won't spend a lot of time comparing its structure to Save the Cat or traditional three-act structure or the hero's journey or any of that stuff. If you want to look at it through that lens, check out storylanes.com and the Casablanca analysis found there. Because as usual, I've included lanes in the Storylanes analysis for each of those models. So what makes Casablanca so darned awesome? Now let's start with the dialogue, because Casablanca may be the most quotable screenplay ever written, with several lines that have become iconic and entered the language. Now I should say I love a good line as much as the next movie fan, but I don't think dialogue is the most important thing about a screenplay. Story structure always comes first. While great dialogue can be amazing, it's the icing on the cake. It's not the cake. That said, listen to just a few of the lines from Casablanca because they're truly amazing. I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You'll always have Paris. Round up the usual suspects. Here's looking at you, kid. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. I came to Casablanca for the waters. The waters? What waters? We're in the desert. I was misinformed. I'm making out the report now. We haven't quite decided whether he committed suicide or died trying to escape. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. It goes on and on and on. If all you want from a movie is great lines that you can repeat on the way out of the theater, you could do a whole lot worse than Casablanca. In fact, you could hardly do better. But that's not all that this movie has, because it has a nigh-perfect blending of themes, story structure, and the protagonist's character arc. And that's what we're going to be diving into next. Casablanca is the story of Rick Blaine, played in one of the great movie performances by Humphrey Bogart. Rick is a man who used to be one of those self-effacing heroes that were so beloved in that era. He was once an adventurer, always fighting on the noble but losing side. Even if, as Louis says, The winning side would have paid you much better. But now Rick is curdled in on himself. Now his motto is, I stick my neck out for nobody. He uses people, treats them terribly. Where were you last night? That's so long ago, I don't remember. Will I see you tonight? I never make plans that far ahead. He won't even share a drink with people who come to his bar. Madame, he never drinks with customers. Never. I have never seen it. Casablanca is the story of why Rick has gone so dark, and how he regains his heroic spirit, how he gets to the point where Victor Laszlo, the embodiment of heroism, can say to him, Welcome back to the fight. This time I know our side will win. Now at the start, Rick has a major flaw. He's awfully self-centered. And what he needs to learn is to put his own struggles and suffering in perspective, to put the needs of others above himself. You get the feeling that Rick wasn't always that curdled, but he was always that self-centered. He liked being the hero, liked how it made him feel. And that ties in directly to the theme of Casablanca. Because the theme, as Rick states near the end of the movie, is... I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. In a world that is on fire, individual needs and suffering must take a back seat to the greater good. Now this was a perfect blending of theme and time, because Casablanca was made in 1942, in the middle of World War II. The world was a horror show, 
and individual problems had to take second place to the collective needs of the world. Now, every movie is obviously a product of its time, but Casablanca's message seems particularly apt for its moment in history. So that is Rick, the central character of Casablanca. But what about the supporting characters? Well, the major supporting characters of Casablanca tend to the extremes. Louis is about as corrupt and self-serving as one can imagine. Victor Laszlo is noble as noble can be. Major Strasser is a complete villain. And Ilsa is pure radiant beauty. Oh, she's got a strength of character to be sure. But as played by Ingrid Bergman and shot by cinematographer Arthur Edison, she positively glows. There's a lot more characters in this movie, to be sure, but let's talk about them a little later, because they constitute one of the great strengths of Casablanca and they are well worth a special discussion. Instead, let's dive into structure and theme and how it's all wrapped up in Rick's character arc. The first thing we see in Casablanca is literally the entire world. A spinning globe appears as voiceover describes the situation. The world is at war, but Europe is occupied by Germany, and desperate people are streaming out of Europe, trying to escape the Nazis, and their way out takes them through Casablanca and French Morocco in northern Africa. Now notice how this scene does this. We start about as broad as we can get with the whole world. From there, we move quickly to Europe, and then we narrow in until we find ourselves at Casablanca. And all the time we're zooming in closer and closer on a map until only that Casablanca dot appears. Now this doesn't only set the stage, it also sets the stakes. The whole world is at stake in Casablanca, and that is critical to this story and to its theme. Now once in Casablanca we see desperate people trying to escape. We see unscrupulous people feeding on them. We see that there is an active resistance movement, but we also see that life is cheap. In five short pages, we know this place, know the issues that are facing the people stuck in it, know how it feels into the broader context of the world. It's nice economic storytelling. We're next introduced to a major source of the conflict as we meet the Nazi Major Strasser, and we're given a glance at the primary struggle at hand. The Nazis want to keep resistance leader Victor Laszlo find some reason to arrest him. But from there, our point of view narrows even further, because next we find ourselves in Rick's Café American, and this is where much of the film takes place. Once again, we see desperate people trying to find a way out. Once again, we see the unscrupulous preying on them, all against a backdrop of glamour. And finally, we're at the center of the action. We've gone from the world to Europe to Casablanca, and now, finally, we're at Rick's. From broad to narrow, all very well done. And the Rick we meet at Rick's is at his darkest. This is where he treats Yvonne like dirt. It's when he refuses to stick his neck out to help Ugarte escape from arrest. And it's when Ilsa walks into the café. Now we know immediately that there's something there, something painful. And note how clever the screenplay is in making this clear, how it piles on the layer of signifiers. Note Sam's reluctance in this clip. Leave him alone, Miss Elsa. You bad luck to him. Play it once, Sam. For all time's sake. I don't know what you mean, Miss Elsa. Play it, Sam. 
play as time goes by. Oh, I can't remember it myself. I'm a little rusty on it. And note that when Rick hears the music playing, he storms over, angry. Sam, I thought I told you never to play. It's the first time we see Rick be anything but cool and cynical, and it's all because of that song. And when he sees Ilsa, he's shocked. But they don't have time to talk yet. There's too many people around. All they can do is a bit of coded dialogue full of subtext. But of course that was the day the Germans marched into Paris. Not an easy day to forget. No. I remember every detail. The Germans wore gray, you wore blue. And that's pretty much the end of that sequence. All the main pieces are on the table. We've met Rick. We've gotten a hint of his pain. We've met Ilsa and Laszlo, Major Strasser and Louis, and all those people who hang around at Rick's who work there and come there. And we've met Casablanca and learned of the desperation of all the people stuck there. It's a terrific opening act. But what follows immediately thereafter is very interesting. In most movies, and as prescribed by most screenwriting gurus, the protagonist should reach his lowest point about two-thirds of the way into the movie, right near the end of Act Two. Everything is piled up onto our hero, and he looks like he's going to collapse under the weight which means that when he comes back fighting, it's all the more exciting. But in Casablanca, Rick's Dark Knight of the Soul takes place here, right at the end of Act One. This is the moment when Rick, in his cups, repeatedly orders Sam to play as time goes by, when he wallows in his memories of his Paris romance with Ilsa, when we see the flashback of a happier Rick in happier times, when we see the flashback of the moment that broke him when Ilsa abandoned him at the train station. Now, Rick receives other blows in the course of the movie, and we'll discuss those. But this is his lowest point. This is the moment where he is drunk and a broken man. And this, of course, is when Ilsa enters. And Rick is brutal to her. I heard a story once. As a matter of fact, I've heard a lot of stories in my time. They went along with the sound of a tinny piano playing in the parlor downstairs. Mister, I met a man once when I was a kid. It always began... I guess neither one of our stories is very funny. Tell me, who was it you left me for? Was it Laszlo, or were there others in between? Or aren't you the kind that tells? Now that's about as close as Rick could get in those Hayes Code years to calling Ilsa a whore. The tinny piano in particular was a sign of a whorehouse. It's a brutal line, and Ilsa immediately leaves. This truly is Rick's lowest point, where he lashes out hatefully at the person he loves the most. And it all happens at the beginning of Act Two. According to the gurus, that's way too early. But it works for Casablanca. Which goes to show, no fixed formula is going to work for every film. Casablanca actually has most of the Save the Cat story beats in it, but not in the same order, and not in the same way and certainly not on the page numbers prescribed in that guide. And that flexibility is an important thing for screenwriters to note. Anyway, once that scene is over, the first part of Act Two is all about people finding out there is not going to be an easy way out of Casablanca. Laszlo finds out that only the letters of transit will do for him, and Rick won't sell them. Jan and Anina, the young Bulgarian couple, also aren't going to find an easy way out. 
We'll talk more about them later. Meanwhile, Rick goes about his business until he finally sees Ilsa in the market. And now we get to the midpoint. Rick, sober now, talks to Ilsa in the market. This is both an excellent and pivotal scene. Rick and Ilsa have a serious conversation as he tries to cozy up to her. But the lace salesman trying to sell to Ilsa provides a delightful counterpoint. It's worth noting how it's done, how the presence of this third person helps keep the scene from descending into melodrama. Because there's some pretty serious stuff going on here. This is the moment when Rick learns why Ilsa abandoned him in Paris, and it shatters him. Because he finds out that the reason she left him wasn't because of anything he did or anything he failed to do. And it's not because Ilsa lacked the courage to be with Rick, as he suggests. In fact, the reason that Ilsa left has nothing to do with Rick. Ilsa ghosted Rick because... No, Rick. No, you see, Victor Laszlo is my husband. And was, even when I knew you in Paris. Yes, Ilsa left Rick when she found that her husband Victor Laszlo was still alive. And so she left him to be at the side of her husband, a move that took far more courage than staying with Rick. Rick is absolutely gutted. It's a direct assault on his self-centered self-image. Because he learns that the worst thing that ever happened to him has nothing to do with him. He's not even at the center of his own story. Now, of course, there's an irony here. Because we're watching Casablanca and Rick is the center of the story. But you know what I mean. Anyway, Rick's entire worldview is shattered and he spends the next major sequence finding a new model of how to live in a world where he is not at the center of the story. And that model is Anina, the Bulgarian girl who is willing to sleep with Louis in order to get her husband Jan out of Casablanca. She is willing to make this sacrifice for her husband, a sacrifice that will be completely unsung. She's not looking for glory, she's not doing it for her own sense of self. Instead, she is doing this for another and she inspires Rick with her selflessness. Now we're going to talk more about Anina shortly, because I think she's part of the brilliance of Casablanca. But for now, just note how her example inspires Rick to selflessness. And as a result, we see him do the first selfless thing we've seen him do in the entire movie. He has Emile the croupier let Jan win at roulette, thus giving Jan the money to bribe Louis for an exit visa. Anina will not have to sleep with Louis, and all because Rick gave Jan the money, and gave it to him in a subtle way, a way in which he refuses any kind of applause. It's the first crack in Rick's hard-guy, self-centered facade. Now soon after that we have the Marseillaise scene, where Laszlo leads the café in singing the Marseillaise and drowning out the Germans. But most importantly, it's Rick who gives the bandleader the nod, tells him to play as Laszlo asks him. And now, Rick has taken a stand. Oh, he's not the guy leading the singing, but he gives his approval. The man who sticks his neck out for nobody has stuck his neck out, and once again done it from the shadows. Nobody but the band leader could know that Rick was involved in the decision at all. But the key point, Rick is moving away from self-centeredness. Now note how well this all comes together. The Marseillaise scene is one of the most stirring in Casablanca and it fulfills so many functions. It ramps up the conflict with Major Strasser and the Nazis. It shows Laszlo's inspiring impact, why his fate is so critical. 
It gives us an iconic image of corrupt officialdom when Louis says, I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. Which is, of course, one of the great lines in any film, and one that has entered the language. But perhaps most importantly, this moment is a key milepost in Rick's journey to being the selfless hero. But he's not quite there yet. There's one other thing that has to happen first. He has to resolve things with Ilsa. And here I'm going to go out on a limb and share one of my interpretations of something that happens in Casablanca. It all has to do with the scene where Ilsa comes to Rick's room. She demands the letters of transit, pulls a gun on Rick, but he calls her bluff, says she should shoot him. But she can't do it. Instead, she declares, The day you left Paris, if you knew what I went through, if you knew how much I loved you, how much I still love you. They embrace, kiss, and fade to black. When the lights come back up, the tension is gone. Rick and Ilsa are calm. Ilsa calmly tells her story. Rick is making plans. So what exactly happened during that fade to black? I think it's pretty clear that they had sex. Now, these were the days of the Hayes Code. Movies couldn't show extramarital sex. They certainly couldn't show, couldn't even hint at adulterous sex. And after all, Ilsa is married, and not to Rick. So it's understandable that Casablanca couldn't come right out and show them dropping into bed. But I think it's pretty clear that's what happens. And from now until the end of the movie, Rick is calm and controlled and on his ultimate path to self-sacrifice for the greater good. Now I'm not saying that's only because he and Ilsa had sex. I'm sure her declaration of love to him mattered too. But, well... Near the end, he says, We'll always have Paris. We didn't have, we, we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. Yeah, Rick, we hear what you're saying. But however he got there, Rick has learned that the world doesn't revolve around him, that other things are more important. He's learned, Ilza, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. His character arc is complete, the theme has been stated, and all that remains to be done is to send Victor and Ilsa off on the plane, kill Major Strasser, and let Rick's example inspire Louis, the most corrupt figure in the movie, to become his own best self. Magnificent. This is a superb story structure. Rick, so self-absorbed, has his Rick-centric worldview shattered by Ilsa's revelation about why she left him. He finds inspiration in the selfless act of a young Bulgarian woman. He gets his final push to the side of the angels from an act of love. And his selflessness in turn inspires the most corrupt, self-centered character in the film to take a stand for goodness. It's a terrific character arc, a terrific story structure, and a wonderful theme that is perfectly in keeping with its time. And, I should note, the movie gets through all of this in just an hour and forty minutes. What economic storytelling! It's magnificent! But there is at least one more reason that I love Casablanca. And this one is a counter-argument to what I think is the most wrong-headed common bit of screenwriting wisdom that you'll hear from a lot of people. The idea that all the characters in the film should be there to be part of the protagonist's story. Now there is some truth to this. You should know why every character is in your film. 
But that doesn't mean that every character has to be only in service of the protagonist's story. And that's a problem I see in a lot of movies these days, supporting characters that don't seem to have their own lives, their own purposes and goals. They start to feel like cardboard, like they're only present in support of someone else's story. That is certainly not how life works, and that's not how movies should work either. By contrast, in Casablanca there are dozens of fascinating characters that all have their own goals, backstories, and points of view. Even minor characters seem to have depths that we only barely glimpse. Consider Carl the waiter at Rick's. He connects with the customers. He's in the underground. He delights in seeing Rick's transformation. And at every moment, he seems like a complete well-rounded person who is not in this world just because Rick needs someone to deliver drinks. Or take Yvonne. She's the boozy barfly who Rick viciously rejects early on. Later, she shows up on the arm of a German officer, seeming to have sold out her French heritage. But when Laszlo leads the bar in singing the Marseillaise, she finds her patriotism as she stands in tears, singing. In three short appearances, she has an entire character arc. One that incidentally reinforces the theme of how one person can inspire another. And also reinforces the significance of Laszlo. If Victor Laszlo can even inspire a lost cause like Yvonne to patriotism, he must be something special. Casablanca is full of vivid characters that never interact with Rick at all. Think of the pickpocket, so memorable as he says, I beg of you, monsieur, watch yourself, be on guard. This place is full of vultures, vultures everywhere, everywhere. While, of course, he's being one of the vultures. In fact, one of the things that I find notable in Casablanca is how many of the supporting characters could easily be the protagonist of their own films. I'd love to see the caper flick where Ugarte steals the letters of transit, or the inspirational hero story of Victor Laszlo's escape from the Germans, or Yvonne's story expanded from that three-scene arc, from boozy bar bimbo to patriot. The movie is full of vivid characters who could step forward to lead their own story. But what's the advantage of that? Don't all those characters just distract from Rick's story? Wouldn't we be better off in spending all that time with Rick, Ilsa, Victor, and Louie? No, I don't think so. In particular, I think there are two major advantages to Casablanca's approach. First, the presence of all these people with all their individual stories makes the world feel so much more real. Which in turn makes Rick's story feel more real. The world is not just about one protagonist leading his own story and everyone else just being a part of it. It's about one story in a complex world full of stories. I often find that movies from the 40s, movies like Casablanca, feel a lot more real than movies made today. Because the movies made today lack that broad sweep of humanity. They don't feel like they are populated with real people but rather with paper cutouts who are present only in service of the protagonist's story. By contrast, the broad collection of characters in Casablanca, all of whom have their own lives and stories, many of whom never interact with Rick, even indirectly, make this world feel much more authentic. But there's another major benefit to this large cast, and that is in evidence in Casablanca because sometimes a background character will step up and become an important part of the story. And when that happens, it's far more believable if she's already part of a wider story world. 
Casablanca's best example of this is Anina, the young Bulgarian girl. We see flashes of her and her husband Jan throughout the film. In one of the first scenes, before we even meet Rick, we see her staring longingly at the sky. Perhaps tomorrow we'll be on the plane. She appears in the police station being told by an official, There's nothing we can do. Later, there's a flash of her and Jan being turned away by Ferrari, who tells them that they should try to get help from Louis. Now these are all short scenes, blink and you miss it moments. They're just enough to establish that Anina is there, another of the desperate refugees, a part of the scenery. Just two more faces in the crowd. And then Anina steps out of that crowd to talk to Rick, to become the thing that inspires him, a model of selfless love, to be the light that leads him onto a better path. Now if Casablanca didn't have so many characters filling its spaces, if Jan and Anina were the only desperate people we saw, it would be immediately obvious that they are being set up to be significant. But because they are only two of the many desperates, the Amsterdam banker, the man paying a fortune to get out on a boat, the woman selling her jewels, the man having his pocket picked, when Anina steps forward and takes center stage for her moment, it feels more organic. She feels like a person, not just a device. I wish more modern movies would take this to heart. I wish they would exist in fully populated worlds where supporting characters aren't just there as, well, as support. I think it would make for better movies. Anyway, that's Casablanca. As I said, I think this is the greatest screenplay ever written. Because I think its structure is terrific, Rick's character arc is superb, the dialogue is as good as any, and the broad collection of supporting characters make the world both fascinating and believable. So what are my three screenwriting lessons from Casablanca? First, don't be afraid to put lots of characters in your film. Don't limit yourself to characters who will have a direct impact on the protagonist's story. A broadcast of characters with their own goals and needs makes for a bigger, more realistic story world. And who knows, you never know which one of those characters will become crucial. Second, think carefully about your themes and make your characters represent and reflect those themes. Casablanca is about the need to put aside personal wants to work toward the greater good, because that is what was desperately needed in 1942 when it was made. Rick starts out terribly self-centered, but Casablanca is the story of how he comes to a place where he sacrifices the love of his life for the greater good. The third note, use supporting characters to reinforce the themes in the protagonist's character arc. Louis is, if anything, even more self-centered than Rick, and more unwilling to take a stand. As he says, I have no conviction, if that's what you mean. I blow with the wind, and the prevailing wind happens to be from Vichy. But after seeing Rick send Ilsa off on the plane, Louis is inspired, and he takes a stand, steps up, and joins the side of the angels. But of course, he does that in that typical Louis fashion, with a little twist of the corrupt. Round up the usual suspects. At a lesser level, when the movie starts, Yvonne is clearly only interested in her own personal concerns. But she is inspired to patriotism, to something beyond her own selfish needs, in the Marseillaise scene. She, too, travels the same character arc that Rick travels. And that's the point. These characters reflect and mirror Rick's arc, which reinforces the theme. And that's Casablanca.
Now, a couple of other things. There's nothing much to report about Domicidal this month. We're focusing on our social media presence and campaign, and we're applying for grants and figuring out what terms we'll offer investors. It's a lot of tedious producing work that needs to be done, but it isn't that exciting, so I'm not going to talk about it in too much detail. If you want to follow our social media, and I encourage you to do so, go to the Domicidal website at httpdomicidalmovie.com. It has links to our social media. You can even sign up for our newsletter, which I promise we'll be publishing soon, and which is another of those things that I'm working on this month. Links to the Domicidal website, along with a link to the Storylane's analysis of Casablanca and the screenplay I used in this analysis, are at httpstorylanes.com. There you'll also find a copy of the script of this episode. Now, as I mentioned, I'm planning on once again focusing this podcast on screenplay analysis. It's a subject I find fascinating and an exercise that I find incredibly educational. And I hope it's useful for you, the listener, or at least entertaining. I really do think this is the best way to become a better screenwriter. And if you're not interested in writing screenplays, well, maybe it will help you understand how screenwriters think about making movies, the movies that I hope you love as much as I do. Of course, the other thing you have to do to become a better screenwriter is to write screenplays, so get back to typing, folks. Now, as of right now, my plan for the next episode is to do a twofer. If I can find copies of the screenplays, I'm planning on analyzing The Shop Around the Corner, a 1940 romantic comedy, and I'm going to pair that analysis with You've Got Mail, the 1998 remake of Shop Around the Corner that moves the movie from a small curio shop in Budapest to online New York City. Now, I absolutely love The Shop Around the Corner. I think it's a delight but I find it fascinating how You've Got Mail is similar, and yet is not. At points, it's almost a beat-by-beat remake of the original, and yet somehow it loses much of that original's charm and pathos. I think it's going to be fascinating to study why this is the case. Until then, check us out at storylanes.com, and subscribe on any of the regular podcast services so you won't miss the next episode. Until next time, this is Joe Jakevich of the Story Lanes Podcast. Talk at you later. Mm-hmm.